one of the goals is I'd like to get out of this meeting alive. That is a reasonable goal. If you're a presenter and you maybe have some bad news, you know, you want to think about that goal. And then you think about what does that goal mean for how I need to present my information to make it persuasive. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the All the Responsibility, None of the Authority podcast with your host, Nels Davis. That's me. This is episode number 304, and it's the first of two episodes about persuasion. You know, recently I gave a few presentations to some executives, and they went very well, and I got some interesting feedback in the end. People said, wow, that those were really good. Can you tell us how to be more persuasive? So I thought, well, okay, I've been doing it a long time. I've learned a lot of tricks and things, but you know, I've also studied some stuff about persuasion and I thought, well, let me put together a few ideas. And that's what really turned into this podcast episode, which is, by the way, the audio from a video that I did, a Facebook live video. And I also have a related blog post on my blog, secretproductmanagerhandbook.com. In the show notes and in the blog post and some short bibliography of a few books and presentations and videos on persuasion. And you can go to alltheresponsibility.com slash 304 for those notes. If you have additional questions or want to talk about persuasion anymore, of course, you can contact me through that as well. If you like this episode or find it valuable, maybe you can recommend it to your friends. And of course, I always welcome your reviews and so on on iTunes. How to be more persuasive. It's a skill that we really need as product managers or as anybody. We, Everybody needs the skill of being more persuasive to be successful in life and business. So I hope some of these tips are useful for you. Let me know what you think. And let's get on with the show. The first thing to note is that there's one fundamental rule about persuasion. And that fundamental rule is that people make decisions emotionally and justify them rationally. Now, this is a little bit of an oversimplification of how people really act, but it's actually not that much of an oversimplification. And it certainly is a very good rule of thumb. And what this means is that if you want to be persuasive, if you want to convince people about something, if you want them to change their mind to make a decision, essentially that's what changing your mind is, is like, it means, right? It means making a decision of some kind then you have to give them both parts of the information that need to go into that. You need to give them the thing that, that convinces them emotionally, that helps them make the decision emotionally, and you need to give them the part that allows them to rationalize the decision rationally. So that's the, the facts. So that's the, the, the fundamental rule of thumb to think about, and there's a lot of different ways that you can do this. And some are things that you have less control over, and some are things you have more control over. Now, I'm uh, an older white man, so that gives me some basic privilege in being persuasive, just intrinsically. Um, and I, so I, I recognize that, that I have that privilege, but I use a lot of other tools and techniques as well. And, and, and so I, you know, I can't suggest to some of you, to many of you, you can't become an older white man like me, but you can use a lot of these other techniques. And so I just wanted to mention that, that sometimes there are, there are these things that are that you are good at naturally, and, and there's lots of things like that that you can actually change as well. So, for example, 
how you dress. If you're in an in-person situation, the way that you dress can actually have a big impact on how persuasive you are. So so those are things to to think about. The way you use your voice, whether you modulate your voice up and down. I, I think I do that. I'm not sure that I do. And I've gotten comments that I need to do more of that. So that's something. Uh, whether you are, how you are engaging personally, whether you smile. So I smile sometimes on these. Uh, it's a little harder when you're just talking right to a camera as opposed to, uh, so you have to kind of remember to do that. Remember to smile. That's the bottom line. So let's talk about a few other things, though, that, that, are, more, that, that are more things that you can actually take some action on right away and that don't depend on your physical state and things like that. So I, I've, I've laid out a few of these tips. There's, there's a lot of things that go into being persuasive. And these, this is certainly not all of the type, the ways that you can be persuasive. And I have a little bibliography at the end that you can review uh, to some of these books. But there's a lot of really good books about persuasion and how to become better at it uh, and what the realities of people's psychology are behind persuasion. But here's some fundamental tips that I think are very useful. Uh, the first one is to have a goal. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that goal. And it, it obviously, if you're trying to convince somebody or you know, get somebody to make a decision in your favor, that's one of your goals. But you may have other goals, and there may be there may be goals that are not so specifically in that way. Like one of the goals is I'd like to get out of this meeting alive. That is a reasonable goal. If you're a presenter um, and you maybe have some bad news, how do you, you know, you want to think about that goal, and then you think about, okay, so what does that mean? What does that goal mean for how I need to present my information to make it persuasive? I mentioned that, of course, that you use emotions, not just facts. Uh, people use emotions to make decisions. And so one of the best ways to get emotions into your into your present, presentation is to have stories and not just facts. And in fact, if you just have facts, that will not work very well. You know, I think that we all know and we've learned over and over again that humans love stories, that stories are sort of this this currency that we use and that people that are better at telling stories often are more successful. So I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about how to use some stories uh, and not just facts. Uh, pre-handling objections. And what this means is you have to know what the objections are going to be in advance. And so what this actually is more about, it, it, I called it pre-handled objections, but really it's it's about empathy. Put yourself in your audience's shoes and figure out what they're going to be worried about and make sure you have answers to some to the questions that come up. Uh, practicing is super important. One of the reasons that my presentations went well is that I actually did practice them. Now, did I practice them as much as I could have? No. But did I practice them at all? Yes. And if I hadn't, they would not, things would not have gone as well. And, and in fact, one of the the things like so one of my presentations was a demo and of course I practiced my demo it was a brand new product to everybody in the room and almost new to me but because I'd done it once I could guide people's thinking about what they were watching and I could point out things that I wanted them to notice and things that I wanted them to if they noticed not be concerned about so those are some things to talk about then there's two other sort of basic things that are not so much about what you say, but what, in fact, what you don't say. One of them is the value of pausing and and waiting and silence. And I'll talk about that in a bit. And then one of them is, the other is what it really means to listen. And that may be happening while you're not speaking. You, you might not be speaking to create silence, or you might not be speaking to let somebody else speak. 
And then what, what are the implications of that? So let's talk about all of these things. So first of all, you might want to have a goal. And so the reason I've got both these categories up here, defensive and proactive, is that uh, I have had both of those two, I had both of those kinds of presentations. I had a pr presentation where I needed to essentially defend a situation where I felt like I'd like to have made more progress or my team would make more progress, but I wanted to represent why that hadn't happened. And I also have had meetings where I want people to agree that the thing I'm proposing is the, is the way to go forward. I call that proactive. You know, defensive things like I want to get out of this meeting alive, and you're going to have a very different set of persuasion, persuasion techniques than if you want to, if you're trying to get the group to agree on something, uh, more of a proactive goal. D these are just some things to think about. Now, I don't, I didn't specifically, before preparing for these different presentations, I didn't specifically articulate those goals per se, but I knew what they were. I knew what the, and this was, this goes maybe to that point about putting myself in my audience's shoes. I knew what they were going to be concerned about. And so, I knew that there were certain things that I wanted to have them not worry about. And I guess that's in, in one of those proactive goals. I wanted to reduce their concern about certain things that I knew they'd be concerned about. I, that was how I approached my, my presentation to get them to essentially reduce their concern. I also, in a different one, I, I wanted to change the way that the audience thought about a particular product. This was in the demo that I did. And I presented the demo and the product in a way that essentially no one had ever articulated before and that I think actually opened people's eyes up a little bit into a new way of thinking about the, the importance of that particular product. So have a goal. I don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be articulated this way. You don't necessarily have to you know, write it down. There's no reason maybe not to do that. But you do want to have, in, in some sense, you want to know what, the, what your goal is going to be in this process. So the next thing is using stories to help you build that emotional connection with the audience so that they can, come, they can make the decision based on emotions and then you're going to justify them with facts. So I, I'm going to remind again, I've talked about this a number of times, but the basic story structure is you talk, there's a problem, something bad happened. You want that to be both emotionally engaging and quantitative if you can both. So your problem statement, the problem portion of the, the story is going to have some emotional things and it's going to have some quantitative things. You know, our sales were tanking and I was about to lose my job, right? So I was about to lose my job is a, is a emotionally engaging thing. Sales are tanking. That's quantitative. You, you want that. Now, you're not going to tell the story in necessarily in this framework, in this structure, when you're in the middle of one of these presentations, but you might use parts of these, and it's useful to know that you, that you have these components. So the second part of the story is the solution. It's what things we tried or what things our customer tried, if we're talking about customers that didn't work, or it may be the things we tried that did work. There's different ways you might use these stories. I talk about that, again, in one of the other Facebook Lives that you can find in the archives. They might have tried, the current, the current solution might not be working, the competitor solution might not have worked for the customer, and so we need a new solution. And this is typically when you're trying to make people decide, uh, agree to like fund a new product or a new initiative is to use something that says, here's all the things we tried that didn't work. We need a new solution if we want to achieve, if we want to solve this problem that we have up here. So then the, the final piece, of course, is the results, which is either the results we got by applying our solution, if you're using the story in that way, or the results we will get by creating the new solution. 
And again, these should be emotionally engaging and quantitative. So typically, again, there's going to be multiple pieces. So in a, in a situation, in a, in a very straightforward story about myself, I might say, sales were tanking, I was about to lose my job, so I implemented this new sales thing. The result was sales started to grow, and I got a promotion, right? So that's, that's got all those different pieces. It's got emotionally engaging in the problem, it's got quantitative in the problem, it's got emotionally engaging in the results, and it's got quantitative in the results. And then it talked about the solution I did. Now the other, if you're talking about trying to convince somebody to fund something, you might say, our customers are having a challenge with this their first experience with our product, it looks old and old-fashioned and uh, it's not very clear what they're supposed to do and it's slow. So we've tried a number of different things and we know that we've lost customers because of that. You know, they our competitor solution is actually much better in this way. And so we need a new solution. And so if we do that, we will get the following benefits. Our customers will be more happy after their initial onboarding and we will seem like a much more modern co- company and we will then start again taking market share away from our competitor so that's that's sort of an example of some uh, two different versions of how you might use the story structure now again the story structure is for the purposes of this conversation is essentially stuff you have in your back pocket and you're going to use parts of that story as you then try to achieve your goals in the presentation so for example if your if your goal is to reduce the group's concern, right? So we can say something along the line, you know, if the problem was, you acknowledge at the beginning, so we were late and customers were unhappy, uh, we changed some things and look how well things are going now, right? And so that's a way that you might structure your presentation to achieve the goal of reducing the group's concern, but using these problem ideas. Again, the problem here, even in the very sketchy way that I put it out there, it's both quantitative and emotionally engaging. You know, customers being unhappy has quantitative implications, but it's really emotionally problem. And then if I talk about the results, you know, I'm going to say, look how well things are going now, meaning, oh, we're now on time or we're now, customers are now happy, things like that. If, you're, if your goal is to reduce blame or to defer, you know, you can do, and this, this is something that happened to me recently. We had a plan for something. We depended on somebody else. The other organization didn't live up to our expectations and that, that they had agreed to. And so we were delayed as a result. And it's always useful in this kind of story to talk about how you're going to fix it as well. The point is that if you put these things in terms of stories, it makes them more persuasive. That's just the bottom line. And to start think, I always, I really recommend think, starting to think in terms of stories. I think it really helps with everything. I've, I've been, become a big booster of the idea of stories lately. So another thing that you want to do, and I mentioned this, as, as I said, is you want to be a, you want to pre-handle the objections. And, and this is especially true if you're delivering bad news, but it might also be true if you're delivering good news. Because sometimes good news is, hey, we delivered this thing we said, but we didn't get everything in it that we thought we would. And so there's, that's a mix of good news and bad news. But especially if you're delivering bad news, you want to make sure that you understand in advance what their questions and concerns are going to be. So that you can cut them off at the pass or handle the objections in, on your terms rather than on their terms. So if you know that they're going to be concerned about a schedule slip, for example, then my, my recommendation is you come out and you say, hey, we, we know that, they're, that this schedule, we're going to have a schedule slip. We know that concerns you. And here's the reason why you're concerned we should, here's, an, here's some reasons why you should not be as concerned as you might be. And here's what we're doing to fix that. And so that's, 
that's sort of the way that I would um, talk about that. That's the way that I might talk about a schedule slip, for example. If you're talking about resource capacity, uh, you might say, "Well, we had this plan. It's gonna it it, it was gonna be it's gonna be much more expensive than we thought it would be uh, in terms of resources." And so we've we're we're dialing back on that. And here's what we're doing to make sure we still deliver value. Now, again, this is a I'm I come from that software world where <laughs> those are the types of terms we use. You know, here's the things we're going to do to make sure we deliver value, even though we don't have as much resources to put onto the project as we originally did. Same thing for customer satisfaction. You know, if you are worried about that, you can talk about what you're going to do with it. And you obviously, in general, you're going to want to be able to talk about what you're doing to address these concerns. Uh, you know, you're not just leaving stuff hanging out to dry. That would That's not a good <laughs> approach. Let me finally talk about the whole idea of waiting and pausing. You know, a pause of a few seconds can be very compelling. It can bring people's attention back to you. It can allow the audience to start asking questions. So if if one of the challenges is you have a room that isn't responding very well and you would like to have more interaction, then sometimes you can just pause. And that will give people an opening for asking questions. And you may not, you, you can ask for questions and then pause, or you can, oftentimes you don't even need to ask for questions. You just pause and people will essentially get so uncomfortable that somebody will start to say something. And then you let that person talk or, and that can often start a conversation. It's kind of interesting how that snowball effect can start to happen. The corollary of, of the pause or the, the flip side, the converse maybe, is the idea of don't interrupting, of not interrupting. So I work with people, I'm sorry to say, who interrupt a lot. I think the way, the best way to handle that, because it can be very frustrating, is to, if somebody interrupts you, stop talking and let them talk. And then if they had a point, then either you, then you often would want to acknowledge that point, or you might want to point out, you might want to gently, in some way, change the subject or give a different perspective on that point. That happened again to me this week. One of the people in my meeting started asking about something that was, it was a good question, but it was a little orthogonal to what I was talking about. And it was something that would be owned by a different team and some things like that. And so I let him interrupt and I listened to his thing. I acknowledged what he said, that it was a good idea. And I talked about how in the future, we might be able to do something about it, but it wasn't part of the scope of what we were working on. I think that the fundamental thing here is is the, the automatic response, at least for a lot of people, is to interrupt back and to start answering the question. If you get an interruption, to start answering the question right away. Or even to, even if you didn't get interrupted in the first place, if, the, if you waited for a question, you started to get a question, and then you knew the answer already at, when they first, when they already just started asking the question, you interrupt to tell them the answer. And I, I just don't think that's a very, it doesn't make you look good. That's really the more of the problem with that. And of course, it also means you didn't listen to the whole question, so which might have changed toward the end. It didn't give you a chance to acknowledge the question or to acknowledge the questioner. And so there's a lot of reasons for not interrupting, and that's those are some of them. I do think that every now and then, like once a year, it sometimes is valuable and it builds your personal brand to interrupt or talk over someone. 
I've done that a, a number of times. I'm going to do that occasionally. I don't do it very often, but occasionally I will do that. Somebody will t- be talking and I will just m- talk over that person until they be quiet. Depending on the power dynamics in the, in the situation, that can either be a giant shock to everybody or it can be something that just is enough to push. Sometimes you maybe have people who, who talk too much, who dominate the conversation over and over again in, in different meetings. And sometimes that is enough to actually get that behavior under control. But you have to be very careful about it. And, and again, I have some advantages, um, you know, as being, you know, I have a deep voice. I'm very loud. I have, a, you know, many years of experience of doing what I do. Not everybody could achieve the, the, the outcomes that I do when I do my very measured amount of, of interrupting that I do, my once a year interruption, <laughs> maybe once a year per person. So it doesn't, you know, I do it. I probably interrupt more than once a year, but per person, maybe once a year. Now, the other final, the final thing is you, you've waited, you've gotten questions, you've listened, you've not, you've acknowledged the question. You don't have to answer that question. I mean, sometimes you want to answer that question because sometimes it's a good question, but sometimes you want to answer a different question that's related. Or sometimes you want to say, I'm not going to answer that question now. We're going to take it offline or we're going to defer it or we're going to put it into a parking lot. And those are all options you have. You don't have to answer the question that you get asked. You don't have to answer it with facts necessarily. You can answer it with a story. So that goes back to that whole stories versus emotionally engaging versus facts. And you can answer a different question that's more on your agenda or you can take the question completely uh, offline. You know, generally speaking, you don't want to say something like, well, that's a stupid question and nobody cares. That's not a good way to, that's not a good way to be persuasive. But you can say, you know, that's a, that's a great question. I don't think it's appropriate for this group or at this time. Or you can say, I don't, you can also say, I don't know the answer to that question right now. I need to get back to you. That's certainly an allowable thing to say. So there's all sorts of different ways to handle the questions. The key point is that you don't have to answer the question. And if you don't know the answer, it's better not to make up an answer. Um, that's often, often can get you into trouble if you make up an answer that to a question that you, you, you maybe feel like you should know, but you don't. And so I recommend not making up answers in that way. That is uh, some, some points on persuasion. Uh, some of those ideas have come out of these books, and th- this is just a small, a small set of the books that I've read and that are out there about being persuasive in different ways. Uh, Robert Cialdini's books, Influence and Persuasion, are two very well-known books, and everyone who talks about persuasion recommends those. I think the book Badass, um, which is really about how to create products that people love by Kathy Sierra, is really great and it knows a lot about how human brains work and how to convince people about things and how people make decisions. And so I think it's really valuable to have the ideas and badass in your back pocket when you're trying to do persuasion. Um, to Sell as Human by Dan Pink. Dan, every book by Dan Pink is really good. To Sell as Human is specifically about selling, which of course is specifically about persuasion and helping people make decisions to buy things and how they do that and how you can help them and, and the, the authentic ways that you can help people um, make decisions that are in their interest, but also maybe in your interest. Uh, Chip and Dan Heath write also great books. They have two that are, that are very aligned with, with the questions of persuasion, Made to Stick and Switch. I highly recommend all their books. They have a new book out that I haven't read yet. It's on my Kindle. 
but Chip and Dan Heath, highly recommend them. And then a really great book, Jumpstart Your Business Brain. One of the things that's interesting about Jumpstart Your Business Brain by Doug Hall, he's a very pretty well-known um, consultant in innovation. He works with Fortune 100 companies, and he has these big, these week-long retreats for 20 you know, Fortune 100 executives and things like that. And he has a really interesting framework that I have talked about on my blog a lot called the, the Three Laws of Marketing Physics, which is about having a dramatic difference, an overt benefit, and a real reason to believe. A real reason to believe is the, is the, the really important part for persuasion, right? Because that's going to be the, the thing that emotionally helps you make your decision. The dramatic difference is the thing that's going to help you rationalize this, this, the, the, the decision often. And so I really highly recommend that. It's a, fun, it's a good book. It's very fun to read. And it has a lot of really good ideas in it. And so I highly recommend that. I also suggest any books on copywriting. Copywriting, which is the name of what you do if you write advertising copy. And that can range from everything from, you know, little ad, from ads on TV to ads that you get in, in direct mail to ads you see on uh, websites or whatever. All that stuff is called copywriting. And good copywriters know how to be very persuasive. And so if you, if you read their books and, and take their guidelines, they, have, they use a lot of these same ideas. And, you know, like all this idea of pre-objection handling, that's right out of copywriting. You want to handle all the objections. It's really important if, you're, if your entire presentation is actually in a letter that you're sending to people. So you're sending this long letter, or maybe it's a website, and it's this long thing, and you don't have an opportunity to respond to their questions when they, you don't have an opportunity to sort of have them ask you questions and you respond. You have to respond to the questions within the copy. And so that's something that uh, copywriters have perfected the good ones, about how to do that kind of pre objection pre-handling within the copy. And so uh, I really recommend looking at stuff about copywriting. There's also, of course, many blogs. There's a great podcast on copywriting with David Garfinkel and a lot of other good resources on copywriting that you can find out there. But I recommend a lot of those. And I'll, I'll put some links, as I said, in the comments to all of these things. That is the end of part one of my persuasion tips. I hope you found something useful in this episode. And of course, there's part two coming up soon with even more tips. If you like this episode, please consider rating and reviewing it in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I encourage you to share it with your friends who can use tips on persuasion. And realistically, who of us can't get better at persuasion? The show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 304 have links to a number of persuasion resources, including books and podcasts, so please check that out. And until the next episode, this is Nils Davis signing off. Thanks for listening. Fire. Four, three, two, one. We have ignition.